Hello, and welcome to the second episode of A Grand Reflection. Now, the original plan for this episode was to start talking about truth and really digging into uh, some different models that we could look at, um, some different ideas of what truth is, and to really um, just explore that a lot. Uh, now, don't worry, that will uh, be the next episode, uh, but we're going to do a slight diversion this time because uh, there's something going on in the night sky right now. If you go out uh, after dark at around 10.30 and look towards the north until you find the Big Dipper, uh, and then follow the Big Dipper, uh, follow the arm, follow the curve of the arm uh, downward, uh, what you might see is a faint, fairly large smudge um, that's just a little bit bigger than the moon. And what that is, is that is a comet named Neowise. Now, the reason this is a, a big event is that there hasn't been a comet this bright since Hale-Bopp in 1997. So for over 30 years, uh, the skies have been pretty absent of comets in general, at least ones big enough that we can see. And uh, this comet is only going to be around for a couple weeks, so I wanted to talk about it while... Um, it's still here while it's uh, fresh in our minds and we can go out and look at it. And even more than that, I wanted to make sure from the get-go with the podcast that it's okay for us to uh, go on rabbit trails and um, have a little bit of diversions from the norm and kind of uh, break ourselves free from too narrow of a focus or uh, too rigid of a structure. I really want to be able to... Um, especially uh, kind of go on these these little tangents when there's something that grabs the attention of, of people from all walks of life and um, that people seem to want to be talking about. Uh, I want to talk about those things too. And uh, so just to have a little bit of fun with this, uh, going forward, I'll label these things as Comet Tales, as sort of an homage to this first uh, Comet Tale episode. So if you see that later on, you'll know that uh, something labeled as Comet Tale, uh, a Comet Tale episode will be uh, an, an episode where we just kind of uh, take something that's in the moment, whatever it is, whatever people are thinking about, talking about, and um, taking all these other structures and uh, uh, ideas uh, and frameworks that we've uh, gone over in other parts of the podcast and just uh, um, taking them and applying them to a single thing. So... Uh, so that's kind of the idea behind it. Again, don't worry, next week the truth one will will be coming out. Uh, I haven't abandoned it. I've just diverted it. <laughs> and uh, so for now, yeah, Neowise. Uh, I guess the first question is, why is it called Neowise? Like, it's such a weird name for a comet. But uh, where it gets its name is from a telescope from NASA called the Near-Earth Object-Wide Field... <laughs> Let me try that again. Near-Earth Object-Wide Field Infrared Survey Explorer Telescope. And uh, that's a big mouthful, but what it does is it peers into space and uh, tries to look for anything that might be coming our way um, that might pose as a danger to us. So don't worry, in this case, uh, with the Neowise Comet, it's not something that is at risk of getting close to us. When the telescope first saw it, it was actually 14 light minutes away. Which, to put in perspective, the sun is only eight light minutes away, so it's almost it was almost twice as far away as the sun is from us, 
and uh, they've kind of charted its path. And what uh, what will happen is when it gets the closest to us, it's still going to be six light minutes away, uh, which means that the comet will be at its closest, still closer to the sun than it is to us. But this is kind of a common thing for comets is they uh, they will do these weird looping orbits where they'll be really far out, uh, deep, deep in, into space almost not even counting as part of our solar system, except that they are still circling around the sun. So what happens is, is they'll be way out there and then over thousands of years, they'll circle in and get real close to the sun and sort of slingshot back out. And the tricky thing is, is they're actually not that big. Um, it's a little deceptive because right now we can see uh, the comet in the sky, but uh, actually even in the case of Neowise, it's only three miles wide. Um, so I guess that leads to the new question, which is, uh, how do you see something only that's only three miles wide and is so far away, how do you even see that? Well, to get to the answer of that, we, we got to look deeper into what a comet is. Uh, so like I said, they're coming from way out deep uh, in the solar system, and they're made of uh, dust and dried ice uh, from... Uh, very early on in the solar system's creation. And they're just sort of this, this compact ice dust ball thing. And uh, when they get closer to the sun, uh, there's all these solids in them that sublimate. Um, and sublimation is, is all that is, is it, uh, when something goes straight from a solid to a gas rather than going into liquid. Um, it's like dry ice. So if you can imagine this uh, this big ball of dry ice uh, getting closer to the sun heating up and then all that dry ice sort of becomes this fog and the comet gets fuzzy um, and what's what that's called that big fog is called the coma of the comet and these comas can get super huge they can get like um, as big as uh, as a planet and um, you can even see the coma of uh, Neowise if you look at it the the front of the comet actually looks pretty wide. You, um, it, it, it doesn't create a fine point. But what happens is um, you have this coma around the comet and it's this big fuzzy ball of almost like an atmosphere, except the difference is, is it's not holding together because um, because of gravity. It's, it's holding together just because uh, momentum. Uh, all of that that dust and gas is moving in the same direction as the comet and there's no, uh, you're in space. So there's nothing, there's no resistance causing it to fly away. It's all kind of just staying in the same spot. Um, except what happens eventually is it does get close enough to the sun that solar winds start to affect it. So solar winds uh, are just like particles uh, from the sun that get pushed out. And um, at that point, uh, all of that dust from uh, the coma of the comet gets pushed out into space. And uh, this can have pretty dramatic effects because uh, it just keeps getting pushed further and further out uh, away from the sun. And uh, it can be a huge, huge tail after a while. And, and that's the case with Neowise, which, is, uh, which has a tail that is over a thousand times bigger than Earth. So the end result is you get this really interesting thing where you have something that is uh, like thousands of times smaller than the Earth there's a little tiny couple mile wide ice ball that is um, creating this tail that is thousands of times, uh, you know, up to thousands of times bigger than the Earth. Um, and so it's quite a quite a crazy weird phenomenon. And so you get that strange effect where it's something that 
if it's close to us uh, and close to the sun, uh, you can see it with the naked eye, but it's also something that is very hard to detect until that tail happens, uh, almost impossible to see on its own. And so, uh, so that's just kind of an interesting dynamic, but um, because of that weird discrepancy, it makes it really hard to predict when these things are gonna show up. And in fact, like the first comet prediction that we had was Halley's Comet in 1705, uh, which was predicting uh, the comets come around 30 years later. Um, so really, we, we've only been able to predict these things for, you know, for about 250 years. Um, and before that, uh, they would just show up. And if you could imagine, like, uh, having no notion that one was going to be there soon, uh, you just, uh, one night on the horizon, you look, and there's this big giant thing that's just in the sky out of nowhere. And a lot of people would see these throughout history and they'd be very terrified. They'd, uh, they'd see it and uh, freak out. You know, it was seen as the sign of death and destruction and judgment. Um, it was oftentimes seen as a message from the gods, uh, like a warning. Um, a lot of times uh, it was interpreted, uh, the big tail would be interpreted as a giant sword, meant that the, that the gods were coming down. Um, and sometimes uh, it wouldn't be that way. Uh, there's certain cases where uh, it was considered maybe a little bit more of a positive light uh, for instance, uh, after the death of Julius Caesar, his nephew comes to the throne and there's a comet in the sky. And he says, uh, basically, he, he rolls this big story and says, like, hey, look, this is that comet. That is actually uh, my uncle. Uh, this is a great sign. He approves of all this. And so, you know, it's interesting. So, uh, it often marks this, uh, these, these points in history uh, kind of thing. And, and we still do feel this a little bit. Um, when we look at comets, when we look at celestial events like this, uh, there's this tendency to feel small, uh, to feel a little bit of a quickening of the heart rate. And I kind of relate this to uh, these Old Testament notions of the fear of God. You know, that's a phrase that I, I never used to understand growing up. I was like, fear of God, fear of God. Like, that doesn't seem to jive with uh, these other stories of like Jesus and love and, and compassion. Why would I be, I'd be afraid? Why would there be trembling? You know, but, uh, but somebody did relate it to me uh, in a really uh, understandable way, which is like, uh, say you go to the Grand Canyon and uh, they have these viewing platforms and you can go over them, over to them and step out and they do these plexiglass floors so you can look down and see the depth of the canyon below you. And it's this moment where like, you know, you're totally safe, but it's also uh, kind of terrifying in some ways. Um, you get this feeling of smallness and, and even more than that, maybe this uh, feeling of witness, like you are um, beholding something big. Um, and so these, these moments of witness kind of become a sacred ground uh, and a realm of the gods. Um, they amplify uh, the moment, like sort of the sacred now is this like, uh, is, as being uh, in a privileged point in history. But the thing is, is uh, this is kind of always how we viewed the stars, even beyond special celestial events, uh, the stars themselves we've looked at as a, a gateway to the gods and the expanses and the things bigger than us. I, I mean, if you just look at uh, constellations, like what are they? What are the constellations? Uh, they're us connecting the dots and creating pictures that um, are a shorthand for us to remember the gods, uh, to remember the things that they went through. And uh, there's sort of memorials set up there for eternity for everyone to see. 
Um, and and even uh, even more than that, we uh, we see the planets, and they're far enough off that they look like stars, but they're moving differently, and they seem to have a life of their own. So throughout history, we've counted those as actual gods. Uh, I mean, it's no accident that uh, you know you have Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, Jupiter. Like those are all uh, names of gods. Uh, because that's how we viewed these celestial bodies throughout history. Um, and if you even if you look at the Jewish tradition, uh, there's an interesting take there, which is the Elohim, uh, which you could kind of translate as uh, like little g-gods. Uh, they, they're the hosts of heaven, uh, the council of God. Um, uh, essentially, they're the stars and they're the angels. It depends on how you translate it, um, on which way you would go with it. But uh, for... Uh, ancient Hebrew thought uh, it was the same word, it was the same notion the, there's no difference between angels and stars and if you kind of go forward with that there's that same notion of angels that carries over to the New Testament and then you have a new language which is the Greek and they translate that same word, that old word uh, as angels which means messengers and so it all kind of circles back to this whole thing of these celestial events sort of uh, sending a message and at the end of the day, you really have to ask, like, is is it that these things are ominous in and of themselves? Um, do they actually mark a turning point, or are we making meaning uh, from them? Are we are we looking at them and assuming that something big is going to happen, and then kind of confirming the story when something does happen? Uh, is it just a f form of confirmation bias? Well, as I was kind of contemplating this, I came across a quote uh, that I think kind of helped which is, uh, so this is from Figuring by Maria Popova. And uh, the quote is, um, it is our faculty of fancy that fills the disquieting gaps of the unknown with the tranquilizing certitudes of myth and superstition that points to magic and witchcraft when common sense and reason fail to unveil causality. But that self-same faculty is also what leads us to rise above accepted facts, above the limits of the possible established by custom and convention, and reach for new summits of previously unimagined truth. Which way the coin flips depends on the degree of courage determined by some incalculable combination of nature, culture, and character. And so, thinking of it that way, um, I'm starting to realize that it seems like we walk a tightrope when we reach something like this beyond ourselves. On the one hand, there's just tremendous risk for fear and superstition and this want to uh, provide a quick, easy answer and a quick uh, solution for uh, what's right and wrong and what we should do next. And I think a, a wonderful example of this comes from one of my favorite movies as a kid, which is The Iron Giant. Um, so in the movie, there's this giant metal monster that falls from the sky, and the main character, uh, whose name is Hogarth, uh, he becomes friends with it. And then uh, he tries to hide it, but he doesn't do the best job of it, and the military learns about the giant metal monster, and they think that it might be a Soviet weapon. And then uh, they come into the small town uh, where the giant is and uh, they see what they expected to see. They see a weapon, they see a threat, and they see something uh, that they need to destroy so that they don't get destroyed. And you can't really blame them for that. Uh, that is an easier way to think of things. Um, when we're confronted with new information that doesn't fit our frameworks, uh, it's easier to slide back into 
the frameworks that we had before that were comfortable and uh, to create expectations instead of wrestling with the unknown. It's often easier to find a quick answer uh, than it is to uh, explore and and hold on to the questions. Uh, but this is where uh, the movie really shines, which is uh, Hogarth, uh, the main character, he sees wonder and holds on to it as as much as he can. All over in the film, you see his overactive imagination. And uh, even when he's afraid, he still chooses to ask questions and see things outside the box rather than run to conclusions uh, and close off his mind. And because of that, he sees what others don't. He sees the soul of the robot because he chooses to look for it. And then because he sees that in the robot, um, the robot ends up saving everyone instead of destroying them. And I think this is the power of the imagination. Uh, the imagination can profoundly change how we view the world or uh, what's possible. And it's really cool because in the last week I actually saw a, a really nice real world example of this, which is uh, there was this picture of the Neowise Comet itself. Uh, it was a picture done by this 19 year old. Uh, his Instagram tag is Bojay Stellar if you want to go check it out. But uh, he posted this really amazing picture of the comet that, that just is like full of color and had these really cool spirals in it. And, um, and people absolutely loved it. Um, and it's great because uh, he spent so much time on it. Just, uh, I mean, he essentially took like a ton of different photos of the comet and stacked them together and then tried to uh, mess with the levels and mess with uh, like a lot of underlying settings. Uh, on his computer to really just sort of draw it out and get as much information about the comet that he could through the light. And um, uh, yeah, he started seeing these lines kind of spiraling through it and he just accented them uh, as much as he could and ended up with a photo that uh, is unlike anything else that, that anybody else has uh, published on it. And, and again, people absolutely loved it. They ate the whole thing up uh, for about... 24 hours <laughs> um, until somebody else uh, posted a, a basically an essay uh, saying how it can't be real, saying that uh, he uh, faked it and uh, that this isn't what the comet actually looks like and um, that uh, it's pretty obvious that he copied from other comet comets that uh, were there before, like the you know from. Uh, like uh, the Hale-Bopp comet, especially he cited, um, and a few others that actually had this spin. Um, and uh, it's interesting, like like that, boom, one article, and then everybody hated it. And there's this huge backlash online against him saying like, how dare you try to trick people? You know, like, I can't believe you would do this. And uh, yeah, all it took was one article and then that wonder was shattered and people moved back into uh, fear and judgment and uh, close-mindedness, if anything, more than there was before. And, it, you know, it's this fragile nature of wonder that we're up against. Uh, there is a very fine line between wonder and terror. Um, the to, to have awe versus uh, for something to be awful. Um, it's super fragile. Uh, but, to Bo J. Stellar's credit, uh, he handled it wonderfully. Uh, he uh, chose to uh, stay active within the community, and he chose to uh, immediately put out a response, um, saying basically, 
uh, I may have been wrong. The spirals may not have been there. Um, so consider my photo not a photo, but a uh, interpretive work of art for now, and until we can discern whether or not the spirals actually existed. And, uh, and then he proceeded to uh, give a really good case for why the spirals might be there, and also a really good case for what might have happened within his uh, process that would have caused him to see something that wasn't there and amplify it. And uh, it was just this really cool uh, way where he uh, he didn't let it get him down. He, he said, you know, I might have been wrong, and that's okay, uh, and we'll see. And, you know, it's interesting. It reminds me of what happened in the late 1800s, which was people were uh, using telescopes to look at Mars, and there was these little smudges of darkness, and they interpreted certain places as being these really kind of rigid canals. And you can look back and see these maps of people that, that people have drawn uh, that are really detailed of like these super straight canals um, that people thought were from Martians uh, that, that were actually built. They thought there's no way these could be uh, natural formations. Uh, they must have been built. And uh, the funny thing is, uh, they were totally wrong. Uh, those the the canals were not there at all, and uh, they uh, it was just like aberrations of, of of the ways that you see things through a telescope. And uh, yeah, it was proved wrong. But uh, those canals were a huge, huge factor in our common consciousness and understanding of aliens and space travel and the wonder of it all and the possibilities that are out there. Um, so it was debunked, but. Uh, it didn't change the wonder that it brought along with it. Um, and this tends to be how it goes. Uh, there will be some who will get more mad, and there will be others who uh, are not at all um, saddened by or angered by or frustrated by things that turn out to be false. Uh, instead, they, they will use that as a springboard to ask new questions. And that's totally the case. Uh, for for the picture of the comet by Bo J. Stellar. Um, sure, there's some people who uh, are just being totally angry towards him and just demanding that he take a, like the image down and, and all this sort of stuff. But still, though, there's others. There's others that as the comet is approaching, uh, they'll be looking for those spirals. They'll be looking closer at the comet to see if the spirals are there. And who knows, maybe they'll find the spirals or maybe they'll... Uh, find something totally different that we didn't expect about the comet. Uh, but it doesn't matter. It's not The point isn't whether or not the spirals exist. Uh, the point is that this whole ordeal has opened up the possibility that they might. And so turning back to the Iron Giant, um, it's interesting because you look at this overactive imagination that Hogarth has, and it it leads him to like a lot of wrong conclusions in the story. Like he, he gets so many things wrong, but it's so cool because he learns from those two. And uh, when he gets wrong, when he, when his conclusions lead into the wrong spaces, he uses those to ask even better questions and to explore even more. And then those questions lead him to be open up to other possibilities that were even bigger than what his initial fears told him. And because of that letting go of the fears and choosing to continue to ask questions, uh, 
and not being so worried about being wrong, um, just leading to wherever the, the things goes, uh, in the end, it causes the entire town to change. Uh, and it didn't take him making some great new discovery or solving some crazy problem. It happened because he was ready to move forward and explore the unknown, even in his smallness. One of the main quotes of the movie is, you are who you choose to be. And as we look up at the comet and choose to really look, we can feel small. After all, comets have been harbingers of the apocalypse in the past, and that's a scary thought. But if you explore the meaning of the word, it doesn't mean the end. Uh, it's a Greek word that means an unveiling or unfolding of things not previously known and which could not be known apart from the unveiling. In other words, it's a revelation. And humans throughout history have stared up at the stars and seen them in black and white. The Milky Way was called the Milky Way because we see it in grayscale. Our eyes uh, don't have a way of picking up dim light and color. But people kept looking. And what we discovered was an explosion of colors hiding there all along. We discovered this beauty because we decided to not look away. And we decided to not assume that we had the answer already. We kept looking, we kept exploring, we kept being full of wonder. And then we encountered uh, something entirely new that we didn't expect. Um, so when I look at Neowise, uh, the word, it, it is just an acronym. It just stands for a bunch of other words, but it's also a really interesting name because Neo means new. So new wisdom, Neowise. I like that and I think it's very fitting because if apocalypse means revealing, then perhaps we can set Neowise in our minds as a marker of change. And if, as Hogarth says in The Iron Giant, we are who we choose to be, then let's choose to be the keepers of a new wisdom. And as wisdom keepers, let's continue on to the next episode as we delve deep into what truth means and how we can transmute it into wisdom that we can hold on to. I'll see you guys next week.